0: To Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something to people. The gentleman on my show today, I think he's the ninth or tenth cast member of The Sopranos that has done Cooper Talk. And he's been in so much stuff. He's been in Brotherhood, Jack Ryan, Suits. He's in this season of Reacher. I'm going to tell you something. He has a scene where Dominic Lombardosi, where they're both working their acting muscle. And it's, it's a wonderful scene. It's just It shows what he can do. And he's also a singer. He was just in the Philippines and doing his show with Deborah Renard called The Soundtrack of Our Lives, I believe.
1: And my guest is Al Sapienza. How are you doing, Al? Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the Philippines. I saw that. It's such a weird thing. You were there on New Year's Eve, I believe.
1: Yeah, we were there from December twenty seventh till January seventh. We did four shows, and it was real like we were we were first there in September, and then they asked us back. We played at a college in Gigaro, sixteen thousand people. We played for it was really a trip, and then um they asked us back. A high school buddy of mine was a Navy officer, and he married an oncologist from Sloan Kettering, you, you know the hospital in yeah. the Upper East Side, and her father started a university in the philippines so when he died she felt an obligation to leave the u.s she's an md and take over the university and she did so they asked me us to come and uh sing for their 75th anniversary and then politicians were there so other people asked us to sing and then they brought us back in december and it really was an adventure a real adventure <laughs>
0: well tell me about the soundtrack of our lives and how you got together with deborah because I saw some clips. You know, you're doing everything. You're playing guitar, you're dancing. You're doing a whole bunch of stuff. So okay. tell, tell me how this all happened.
1: Well, I started out on Broadway, right right after NYU. I'm a singer, and i play, I played the drums since I was eight years old, almost every day. And I played guitar, you know, um, and I love music, like love music. And the thing I love about music is, You know, when when you watch a movie, it's a a two-and-a-half-hour endeavor. When you read a book, it's three days. A song in three minutes takes you to a a memory in your life or a new place or an experience. And so I just have always loved music. So Deb sings like an angel. Like, she's an amazing singer. So I met her in acting school in 1984, and we, we became like we ran into each other again around 2010. And we were talking about how much we love music. So we went and sang. I'm always invited to charities because of the Sopranos. And I'd always get up and I'd sing a song or two. Dominic Canese would sing a song. So I started to bring Deb and would sing All I Ask of You from Phantom. And people would be like, where are you guys performing? Where are you guys performing? And we were like, let's put together a show. So we put together a show with the songs we love. And they're all number one hits that affected our lives, affected our careers, our personal lives. And we have slides and videos, and we go through a, a history. It's like a two autobiographies, and we do a lot of monologues about our lives and our careers and the Sopranos. And she was on Dallas for a decade with, you know, Larry Hagman and Linda Gray. So um, it's basically like a one-man show, but a two-man show. And we both wrote the book. You know, basically what I say, I wrote, and people love it. They just love it, and we sell out every time. And we can't do it that much because we're both actors. I can only do it once a year in New York, once a year in L.A. We do Italy every June, and um, and we played the PNC. We opened for Herman's Hermits in June. That was a trip, <laughs> opening for Herman's Hermits and the Tokens. Jay Siegel, you know we.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I used to when I did comedy. There was a guy named Steve Freelander who used to play the the drums for the Tokens or something like that. Or his brother was in the Tokens. There's this guy he was a nuts comic, and I he, he talked about he that. Was still there. Well, you know, it's funny you bring up music, because on Facebook a lot of times I'll do what album was released today, like today Pink Floyd, Animals was. And and you're right, because music does take us to a certain place, and when you hear it, you know, so how do you construct your playlist? Does it it change your set list, or does it stay the same,
1: or? I like to keep it the same, because this, I'm not like a band, I'm a show. This is like, this is a, a definite off-Broadway quality show. I, I, it's obnoxious for me to say Broadway, but a lot of people say it's, it's it's more entertaining than many shows they've seen in a long time. It's it's a um, it's it's a timeline. Like I talk about when I was eight, and I sing the first songs I remember, and then I talk about Kennedy getting killed, and we have the whole Kennedy assassination and the Cuban the Cuban Missile Crisis then the Kennedy assassination, and I talk about Ed Sullivan. And then we sing She Loved You and Nowhere Man, and I play the guitar on them. And then we talk about the first time my mother took me to see a movie, and I see West Side Story, and we sing somewhere from West Side Story. And we don't, our whole goal is to reproduce the original recording. Nobody gives a crap how I interpret a song or Deborah. They, we want to bring them the memory that when they heard "She Loves You," where were they? What they remember? Who they were kissing in the back of a car? And we try and reproduce "She Loves You" exactly like the the record. And we—that's what we do with every song: the Neil Diamond, the Streisand, and the Sinatra. We try to recreate the memory for the audience, and it works. You know, we we're actually real close. <laughs> well,
0: now now you said you, you started playing the drums at eight. What made, you pick, what made you pick up the drums? I mean, what made you start to get into music? Because eight is such a young age, and your parents probably were like, oh crap, the drums, because my brother was a drummer, the loudest right. instrument. But what made you, at eight, eight years old, decide?
1: On February 9th, 1964, everyone was still depressed about the Kennedy assassination from November 63, the end of November. And it was a dismal, dismal, dark time that I remember as a kid. And I'm watching the Ed Sullivan show with my mother and my sisters and brothers. And the Beatles come on. And they were just so different. Their sound, their harmonies, their look, their hair. Paul was so handsome. I was, that was it. And why I, I gravitated towards Ringo playing the drums, I still can't answer that question. But the next day, my dad went to Alto Music in Muncie, New York. He bought me a gold snare drum and one cymbal. And I played, the next day I played If I Fell Perfectly. And um, that was one of the first songs I played on that drum whenever he got it for me. And then in fifth grade for confirmation, he got me a Pearl drum set. And I'm not joking. I played every day unless I was sick. You know, it, was, it would get out my energy, I guess. I had a lot of energy as a kid. And... You know, when Abbey Road came out, I could play the whole B-side on the drums. And then when Beatlemania came along, it was just so convenient that I knew all the songs. And, you know, Beatlemania, people thought we were lip-syncing. Um, it, unless you, I mean, it sounds like a stupid show. Unless you saw it, it was great. It was the grandfather of Jersey Boys. The book wasn't as good as Jersey Boys, but Beatlemania was the first jukebox musical. It was a gigantic hit, and people when they closed their eyes they thought they were hearing the beatles we rehearsed for a year 29 songs the average song was three minutes we played the mistakes we um people thought we were lip-syncing and we had an orchestra downstairs and anyway so i don't know why i picked the drums but and then i picked up guitar and piano later on but you know i i like the guitar because it's just you can carry it around on your shoulder it's very compact you don't have to like rent the car to stick all the drums and cymbals in the back you know so it's like you know i just love music now now when did
0: you decide to start acting i mean when when does that come in because you're you most people are you're so concentrated on the drums you're playing every day so there's that dedication it takes and i always laugh because i know a lot of drummers and i always say the thing about drummers is they're they're always they always have a side hustle and they always they used everyone no one understands they're using every part of their body they don't you know yeah. people you know people will bang on something i go well yeah well why don't you put your foot like you're moving a, a, a the cymbal the hi hat and the bass drum so they have drummers have such a complex mind and that's why i think a lot of them do side hustles they always they're never they're never they always get bored easy so is that why you got into acting i mean what you know cuz you're dedicated as a drummer
1: In 1968, I was at the Nanuet Mall Cinema in uh, Nanuet, New York, and I saw a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I didn't know what a director did. I didn't know what a producer did. I wasn't even sure if they were real cowboys or not. (laughs) I just wanted to do what they were doing. And I was like, I I decided that day, I was like, I'm doing this. I want to be in a movie like this, and I'm doing this. And it, it was so funny in 1960. My dad bought a country club, in uh, in my that's a whole other story. My dad bought a country club. He really did in Casper, Wyoming, the Paradise Valley Country Club, with this other Italian guy, Jerry Loro, and it didn't last very long. I, you know, a New Yorker can't live in 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 Wyoming for very long. I don't know what they were thinking, but I'm I I'm out of that country club, and the golf pro. I was telling him I was a drummer, but I didn't have any drums with me. So he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." So he's like, "Do this with your your right foot." So I did it. He goes, "Do this with your left foot." I did it. He goes, "Now do this with your right hand." And he was like, "Oh, you are a drummer," <laughs> you know. He was the guy was like testing me and like trying to humiliate me, but um, I can play. I I, can, I did whatever he told me to do. I was able to do it, but I don't know. I don't know. I I knock on wood. I just think I was a little lucky, you know. I know what I wanted to do.
0: Well, now Beetle Manny, that you said—that was your first, one of your first big roles.
1: Oh my God! It was four months out of NYU. I graduated at NYU in May, and by October I was in rehearsal. I was really, really lucky. Murray the K, uh, the old DJ—I don't know if you know who that is—but he was like an icon in New York back in the fifties and sixties. He—if uh, it weren't for him, I wouldn't be in that show. Got me an audition. He introduced me to Steve Lieber and David Krebs. He—he he wanted to help me.
0: So you get that done. The show now. When do you all of a sudden veer into acting? Because you've been working for a long time. You've done so many shows, and it's something that you know. So you get done. You get done. Media. What is your goal plan? You know, you're you're on a, in this big show. So you you felt the adulation. You felt being on stage. People love the show. What what do you plan to do? Because you're a young man. You've you've only been out of college for four months. I mean, it's not like you know.
1: Uh-huh. I'm going to go backwards a little. How much time do we have? Do we have time? Yeah, we have an hour, an hour, whatever you want to talk, man. Let, let Let me tell you this story. So I go to NYU. When I went to NYU, I wanted to be an actor, period. I wanted to be an actor. So my parents were not happy about it. So I had to major. I was a double major in marketing and management. But I made a deal with the dean of the School of Business. It's now the Stern School of Business. And he let me take all my electives, not just my free electives, in Tisch. So I'm studying with Stella Adler. And nothing's happening. The class wasn't happening for me. I wasn't motivated. I didn't see anyone that I thought was going to be a successful actor. And I was I was panicking. So I figured I should take a class outside of NYU. And I decided to take a, a class with Joan Dincheko, the daytime casting director of ABC smart move right so I go to this class and everybody's old and I'm like 19 or 18 and there's only one young person in there also so they put us together to do the scenes together so I have to go to her apartment to rehearse she's 18 she's gorgeous I go to her apartment it's um it was on 70 the McDonald's in the lobby that beautiful white high-rise And she's 18, and her boyfriend is 50, (laughs) and he's the coolest, one of the coolest guys I ever met in my life, and nicest guys. And that's Murray Kaufman, Murray the K. He's like the famous DJ. He's an icon. And that 18-year-old, he married her. She turned out to be the most, the highest-paid soap opera actress in American history, Jackie Zeman from General Hospital. So, so I'm I'm at the apartment, and he's like. He just wanted to help me. He just, it was that simple. He's like, you got something, man. He goes, I, I, I really think you got something. So he, um, he, he I, I I played the drums for every gay drummer on Christopher Street. That's how I made my spending money in NYU. You know, and I was a jock and I'm, I'm totally my, I'm, I have no problems with anything gay, but I'm totally straight. And I'm playing for all these gay guys. In uh, all of them on Christopher Street in 1970, like five, six, and seven, it was a to- totally different time down in the villages. Those days, it was insane. So that's how I made my money. I got ten bucks an hour, which in those days that was a lot of money. And I'm surviving, but I'm pan I'm panicked. I'm I, I have no way of knowing how I'd make it as an actor and be successful. So I take so Murray, he um. I wrote a song for this guy, Carmine Stippo, who was one of those singers. He was also an actor. Murray listens to the song, and he's like, Al, this is a hit. So he brings me to meet David Krebs and Steve Lieber. Do you know who they are? No. Okay. At the time, I thought they were really old. They were, like, in their early 30s. By by that time, they already were attorneys. They were agents at William Morris. They handled the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones. Then they went into their own management company. And when I met them, they managed Jay Black from Jay and the Americans. He just left the band. A young guy named Steve Tyler with Aerosmith. He was around all the time. So was Susan, his wife. Ted Nugent. um, Parliament Funkadelic. Walter Egan. And these guys were millionaires already, right? So I'm going to the office. They're like, yeah, this is a good song. So I figured, okay, this is great. I'll make money from the royalties. I'll go to L.A. I'll study acting when I finish college. Everything will be terrific. I'll make money from these royalties if Jay Black sings it. So I'm all excited. So all of a sudden, then I don't hear from Murray. And I call him up. And if you knew this guy, you know what I was. It's just he was so funny. And he was already rich. He lived in this beautiful apartment. He had a, a powder blue Cadillac. And I call him up. I go, Murray, well, what's happening with the song? He goes, Out. Oh, don't worry about it. He goes, we're working on something. If it goes, we're all going to be rich. And he hangs up the phone. And I'm like, what is he talking about? So April of 1977, my senior year, I'm graduating in May. He, gives me an, he calls me up and he goes, I want you to go to 250 West 54th Street, 6th floor. Ask for me. I, I want you to be there at 2 o'clock. So I go. And Art Garfunkel is rehearsing in one of the studios. It was SIR Studios. Meatloaf is rehearsing for Saturday Night Live in the other studio. I walk in this studio, and there are four guys on stage playing Penny Lane. And I almost passed out. They sounded exactly like the Beatles. And Mitch Weissman was a photo double, an absolute photo double for Paul McCartney. He looked like his twin brother, and he sang like him. He played bass. He played piano. He played... Mitch was a, an incredible talent. I was floored. Then they played Strawberry Fields next. And the Beatles never played Strawberry Fields live. They were amazing. These guys were rehearsing for a year. A year. So Murray says to me, and this is how astute he was. He goes, can you do that? I said, absolutely, Murray. I haven't played the Beatles since 1964. He goes, no. Can you sit in the back and be Ringo while the guys in front of you were the stars? You know, he, 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 the guy was brilliant. He was great. And I was like, yes. So I went home. I played. I I took my drums from Rothland County, put them in my apartment on 9th Street in the village because I graduated, like I said, in May. This was April. I graduated the end of May, early June, moved across the street to Avenue, And I'm playing the drums in the apartment. My neighbors were going to kill me. I rehearsed every day. I had an audition in October of 1977. I got in the show as the next cast, and it was the, the one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. I stayed in Beetlemania from 77 to 82, and I went in Beetlemania to help with my acting career, to make money, to save up money, and then go to L.A. I mean, I wasn't—I was doing Ringo Stahl. You know, I had a, a nose and a—you and a, know—and a, a wig, but. I knew it was a good stepping stone. And then Murray married Jackie, moved to L.A. And he's like, Al, you should leave the show now. You should leave the show now. Enough is enough. And I was scared. I was saving my money. So then I took my money. I went to Los Angeles. And I started studying. And if you want, I'll tell you that whole story. But I I, I used that money. I went to L.A. I was petrified. I was scared. I went by myself. You know now Murray rented me one of the rooms in his house, which was for for five hundred bucks a month. That was a lot of money in 1981. but you know at least I'm living with someone I know, and um, and that was the beginning of of the real acting journey, um, and it was funny. Right in in July of nineteen seventy nine, I'll tell you another good story. I found out I'm going to go on the road with Beatlemania, so I was in New York from October seventy seven till july of 89 and i was friends with peter gallagher just from hanging out on broadway he was doing greece and rick smith was doing greece kevin klein was doing pirates of penzance it was a great time and you just run into these people because broadway is a very tiny community if you're working there and you're so um peter gallagher and i are under the awning of the royal the old royale theater where he's doing greece and it's raining and it's like one of those 90 degree days and I tell him, I go. I'm going on the road, man. He goes, Oh man, because I wish I was going somewhere. And oh, I lost you. What happened?
0: I'm here.
1: And I don't see you anymore for some reason. Is that okay? It doesn't make a difference, right?
0: Yeah, I see you. That's, that's what counts.
1: I see. Yeah, I see me, but I don't see you. But that's okay. As long as you can hear me. So Peter's like, he goes. Oh. I said, Yeah, I'm going on the road. We're going right to L.A. and then Toronto. And and he goes, I wish I was going somewhere. So I go on the road with Beatlemania for two and a half years, and three months later he gets the Idolmaker and becomes a movie star. <laughs> you know,
0: I was funny. I was just thinking that. The Idolmaker was such a good movie, and, and, and you can never find it anymore. You know, I, I remember watching that on cable. We had a thing in Philadelphia area called Prism, and it, Cesare, and, and it was such a good movie. And it's funny. When that's what I think when, say, Peter Gallagher. He's been in so much stuff, but I always think of The
1: Idolmaker. Yeah, he's, Peter's a great guy too. He's really a good person. Um, so I go to L.A. and I am in a panic. I have X amount of dollars, and now I have to find a teacher that can teach me how to act and how to get work. So I study with Charles Conrad, which is D. Remember D. D. Wallace, the mother in uh, E.T.? You know, she was the big student from that class. I wound up playing her husband. In a movie called A Month of Sundays with Rod Steiger. I got to play Rod Steiger's son. And um, it was just, it was terrible. Like, it was terrible. Uh, it, it was, it just was terrible. Then I studied with Peggy Fury, which was Sean Penn's girl. And again, like, she, she had this little rickety theater. And she lived in the attic of the theater with this crazy wacky guy and I'm thinking okay if I learn everything this woman has to teach me I'll be living in the attic of a theater with a wacky guy right (laughs) so that wasn't happening and I'm panicking now you know I'm going through my money and I'm like how am I going to make a living you know how am I going to do this and then I study with this with Tracy Roberts And it was like a kindergarten class. Tina Louise was in it from Gilligan's Island. She went back to class. And Tracy was late to every class. She brought her dog. It was, again, it was literally like a kindergarten. It was like a private school for, like, rich, spoiled kids. And nothing's happening in that class. A funny story I want to tell you about that class. So, finally, some guy does a really good scene, you know, in the scene study class. He was really good. And he comes back in the seats behind the teacher, and I said, wow, that was really good work. I said, like, can you tell me, like, what have you done? Do you work? You know, (laughs) you you tell me what, and I I didn't mean to be insulted or anything. And the guy goes like this, and I'm telling you, I don't make these stories up. These are for real. And he goes, well, I played James Bond. I'm like, what? He goes, I played James Bond. I said... You're George Lazenby, and it was George Lazenby from Her Majesty's Secret Service. I loved that movie. I loved it with Diana Rigg, and it was him. So he only stayed one class. So he realized it was a kindergarten too. So I'm in a panic, literally. I've now been in LA for about two and a half years. Um, Murray died of cancer. I got there. I got there November of eighty-one. <laughs> I left Beatlemania and I got there in November of 81. He died January uh, February 21st, 1982. So I am literally in a panic and a bunch of people said to me, "Study with this guy Milton us Study with this guy Milton us. So I go for an interview and his his minions do these interviews. There's a 6 months wait waiting list for the class. So he has a he does a seminar and he, um, he does a seminar for all the people on the waiting list. And the guy pulls up in a black Mercedes 450 SEL with a gorgeous girl on his arm. He directed Butterflies Are Free with Goldie Hawn, her first movie. Eileen Hackert won the Academy Award for that film. He directed Report to the Commissioner, Richard Gere's first film. He directed Private Lives on Broadway with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. The guy was a winner. He looked handsome, you know, just a winner. And he's giving us a lecture and he goes, and when you make it, when you start to work, you put your money in real estate. I'm like, this guy is just, (laughs) and he, he just, this was an amazing seminar. So I'm like, this is the guy, this guy, if I was like him and I had a gorgeous girlfriend, a black SEL and owned a lot of real estate in Beverly Hills, that's a good thing. If this guy teaches me everything he knows, maybe I could be like him. So he also says, he goes, and acting is all about pushing forward. He goes, if you want to get in this class and you want to get off that six months list, you call every Monday. So I called every Monday at 1030. Within four weeks, I'm in the class. Now, like, I'm not exaggerating to entertain you. This is totally true. In L.A., if you have a theater with 99 seats or less, You're allowed to use equity actors for like 20 bucks a night. It's called equity waiver. So, of course, the smart theater owners have 99 seats so they can get the most money for the tickets. He didn't only own the theater. He owned half a block on Robertson Boulevard in Beverly Hills. He owned half a block. Residence, business things with, with, you know, residences on top. That was a multimillionaire. So I walk in the class. It's... August of 1984, Deborah Renard, who I sing in, was in it. At tw- she was 24 years old. At 20 years old, her third audition, she got 186 episodes of Dallas, the TV show with Larry Hagman. She did 10 years on Dallas. She was on the number one show in the world. She's in this class. George Clooney is in this class. Wow. Patrick Swayze is in this class. Dirty Dancing wasn't until 1987. His wife Lisa Meone is in the class. Joan Van Ark is in the class. Anna Alicia from Falconcrest. Crest. Anne Archer, Kirsty Alley. Giovanni Ribisi came later when he was 14 years old he came to this class. Um, the class was amazing. Joe Schumacher was there as a, as a wannabe director to learn how to work with actors. Howie Deutsch, the director. Oliver Stone came for about eight months. Doris Roberts from Everyone Loves Raymond was in that class. She studied with him for 29 years until he died after she won her Emmys and had her millions. This class was unbelievable. And this guy taught success. He taught how to get jobs and be a working actor just as much as he taught the craft. And he felt that the, the former was more important. And, and he believed that talent was not, you know, you weren't born with talent. You were born with certain, you know, abilities that you excelled at. Like, Barbra Streisand had an amazing voice. You know, Sinatra had an amazing voice. But had they done drugs and drank and smoked cigarettes every day, instead of worked their asses off, they wouldn't be where they were. He believed that your personal attitude monitored everything in your life, including your talent the better your attitude the more talent you would develop at a quicker pace he absolutely believed it and and what he said was you're a great actor by the time you're two years old by the time you're two you know how to bs your uncle to get an ice cream bar if your father won't give it to you you know how to speak to your grandmother differently we you all know how to act i have to teach you how not to act badly to not be self-conscious and not to have psychological drama that keeps you from being the great actor you were when you were six years old. It was, the guy was brilliant. Um, and he, he it was just an amazing class. And I would not be successful if I hadn't met him. I would have a completely different life. And I wouldn't be singing with Deborah. obviously. I met her in that class. But um, finding that guy was the key. It was, it was... I owe that man everything, and I also loved him. He was a great guy, entertaining, funny, and he was a he was. A, I believe he was a genius. He had everything. He was rich. He was a beautiful girl. The guy was just he had it made. So anyway, that's my story. So 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 <laughs> when you get
0: out of class. You, you, have the right, you have the right direction. It's funny because I do talk to a lot of people who go to acting you know, to college and they, they study and when they get out they don't know what the hell to do because no one tells you how to get an agent. So the guy led you in a path. So when do you start getting work? How quickly after you get out of that class do you start becoming a working actor on TV and movie?
1: Alright, I gotta go back a little bit to answer that question too. In 1976 one year before i graduated from nyu and one year before i got into beatlemania i got lucky i'm just a lucky guy and i met this associate director of the doctor's soap opera and they gave me an under five role under five means you get paid a little bit amount of money and you're not allowed to say more than five lines but they gave me like a recurring role as an orderly in the hospital so in 2026, I will have been a union actor for 50 years. So I was, I did work, but I had a nothing part. Um, Armand DeSante was on the show as a regular, Kathleen Turner, Catherine Harrell, David O'Brien, and I just observed it as a kid. Like that wasn't a ticket to make it. I, I was, they basically did it out of the goodness of their heart to let me be on the set. They liked me, and I wasn't really acting. I said five lines, like, here, doctor, I have the x-ray. Or, thank you, doctor, I'll wheel him to the room. You know, it's like that. So I did work. Then, during NYU, I didn't work at all, other than the doctors. You know, through the, other than the doctors, I didn't do anything. And then, when I went to L.A., before I met Milton, I had an audition. I did a show with Angie Dickinson. In nineteen eighty one, I was really lucky, and if you watch it, I was terrible. I was terrible. <laughs> self-conscious. It was called Cassie and Company, and I got a nice guest uh co-star role, but it was like two greats, three great scenes on the show. And I was I was really bad. I was stiff. I was bad. You'd see I was self-conscious. So then once I went to Milton's, by nineteen eighty eight, I could I in my opinion, I could act with anyone, because of that class. Like we did, scene study, where he expected you to rehearse it for twenty hours minimum before you came to class and did it, and you had to present your best, so you weren't wasting his, the class and your time. Because if you didn't present your best, he couldn't help you get better. It would be about excuses like I had a fight with my girlfriend, I didn't rehearse. He's not. He was like, I'm not interested in any of that. Get out of my class. Don't even tell me those problems so there's a reason i'm telling you this whole thing about about your question so in 1988 i felt i could do it now let me tell you one other thing milton did if you did like four really good scenes in a row he put you on something called terrorist theater (laughs) terrorist theater and he gave you like four months to get an agent and if you didn't get an agent, you were kicked out of class forever. You could never come back. His success rate was 88 percent because people loved the class so much and it, and, and you, you asked everyone in the class, can, can I see your agent? Can you help me? Joel Schumacher, can you help me?" You know uh, George Clooney, can you help me?" You know because they were doing a little work and it worked. And then once you got the agent, if you did four or five really good scenes in a row there. He put you on terrorist theater again. And he's like, "You have six months to get a paid acting job because I don't care what it is. you could be in the theater. You, uh, you got six months and it worked. So I, I'm in this class once your acting gets good, everything's easy because when your' acting is good and you go to an audition, you're not nervous because you're not nervous. it's like it's like being a, a pilot of a 747 airplane. The first time you land that 777, the giant one now. You know, or the 787, you're shaking, you're sweating. The 2,000th time you land that plane, it's still exhilarating. You still can kill 450 people behind you, but you can do it in your sleep. That's what the acting was by being in that class. I spent thousands of hours on that stage doing rehearsed scenes and playing roles. And you eventually just, even you anybody gets good, no matter what you look like, no matter if you're fat, skinny, tall, white, black, green, you do it. You, it's like that joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? How do I get to Carnegie Hall? You practice. It's like you practice the acting. It just, the tension goes away. And when the tension goes away, you're really good in auditions and you just book jobs. And I started booking jobs. One, w- w- one other footnote I have to tell you. So I'm going to Milton's Tuesday and Thursday. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, in those days, these classes were ten bucks. They were ten dollars. I would, And Milton didn't approve of this, by the way. I would go to the casting director classes in L.A., where the casting directors would teach. And look, the first one I went to in New York with Jones and Checo, I met Murray the K and Jackie Zeman through that class. These things, they work. They're good. There's professionals in them, usually. So I take these classes, and I didn't even know who was teaching them. I just showed up every Monday and Wednesday night, Monday, Wednesday and Friday night at 730. So Diane DeMeo, a big casting director in L.A. at that time, she she was there. I saw her once. And then about three weeks later, I saw her again. And she's like, oh, you're back. That's that's interesting. And then a third time she goes, wow, why are you here again? And I wasn't being a wise guy. You know, these casting director things, they interview you for three minutes, they give you a scene, you go out with a scene partner, you know, that they interview also, you go out in the parking lot, you practice it for a half hour, and then you do it for the casting director. And hopefully somebody will get a job, right? So I wasn't being a wise guy, I was being completely sincere. She goes, She goes, why are you here again? This is the third time. I said, well, you hadn't called me in yet. And I meant it sincerely. Well, the next day, this was nineteen eighty eight. The next day she called me in for Cassie and company. I went right to producers and read for Rosenzweig or whatever producer, Rosen, whatever his name was, and I booked a four scene role on that show, and it started my chain of acting jobs on, on primetime TV at night. I got Cassie and company, then I got a three episode thing on Falcon Crest with Lorenzo Lamas, and then I got one episode of, of Knott's Landing and And that's when it started. And that was really the beginning of my modern TV career. And then getting, you know, 18 years, 1998, 18 years. Most cops and firemen are ready to get a full pension (laughs) in another two years. I got The Sopranos. And, you know, I will always be grateful to David Chase and Elaine Landris and George Ann Walken and Jason Alexander, who's the reason I got The Sopranos. And I, that changed my life in every possible way for the better. And my career really didn't kick in until 18 years after I was a full-time actor. Well, and that was 25 years ago.
0: What? So. What? How did you get the Sopranos job? What happened? Because, you know, I've always heard when someone gets it, the show's popular. Like Chris Caldavino said, the first time he was on set, he was like, people knew him. Like, like, people had pictures of him. Like, the fans were so rabid. But how did the Sopranos come about for you?
1: Okay. I was living with Sibel Ergener for five years in L.A. And she was on JAG. She played skates. And we, you know, we were both working actors. And she dumped me. <laughs> she dumped me. December of 1997, I was very, very, very depressed. Like, really depressed. So I got on Godzilla. I had a small role in the Matthew Broderick 1996 Godzilla and I was invited to the premiere at Madison Square Garden in L.A. And I was so depressed that I didn't take another date. I just went by myself. You know, I'm now living by myself in L.A. And when you go to an event like the Emmys and you go by yourself, they don't want any empty seats. So, so you wind up in the first three rows. When I went to the Emmys, I went by myself because my wife couldn't go. She's a doctor, she's an MD, and she was busy, she just couldn't go. So I'm sitting in front of Kevin Spacey, in front of Robin Wright. It was it was really funny. And the same thing with this with this premiere at Madison Square Garden. I'm sitting in front of Nick Nolte, in front of Barbara Streisand, in front of Mayor Giuliani. I'm like the second row by myself. <laughs> so I'm there, I'm sulking around, and I get a call. And my agent says, Jason Alexander wants you to read for a movie. It's the first movie he's directing. It's called Cherry Pink. Now, that's 1998, May of 98. In 1992, remember I told you about those equity waiver theaters with 99 seats or less? Well, there was this millionaire woman, and she owned a whole office building that she inherited from her late husband on Sunset Boulevard. And she put two gorgeous 99-seat theaters in the lobby called the Tiffany Theater. It was the premier equity waiver theater in all of L.A. It was so classy. She was a multimillionaire. She didn't have to make money, and she just loved the theater. So I'm playing the lead in a comedy called Misconduct Aloud that Minda Burr wrote and directed. And next door, this guy, Jason Alexander... Seinfeld just started or hadn't started yet he's playing Harry Truman in a one-man show called give him hell Harry and he and I are sharing a dressing room and my show is all with beautiful women and babies I play a stand-up comic who's a total womanizer and and then he has a sexual dysfunction so he goes to a psychiatrist whose Margaret Reed played this gorgeous psychiatrist who falls in love with her so jason is playing harry truman we became really good buddies in in the dressing room and and then you know he invited me to seinfeld a few times and you know we just became we are hollywood buddies you don't see each other a lot but i love him and will always respect him and he's still my buddy so out of nowhere it's now may of 1998 i go and i read for cherry pink is the movie He's, he's, Seinfeld is winding down. He's leaving the show and he's directing this feature film. So Anthony LaPaglia got the role. But while I'm in there, you know, I worked really hard on it and I usually do my homework and know everyone in the room. But because it was Jason, I was so excited. I didn't even like know who the casting director was, which is very rare for me. So I go in and I knew I didn't get the job because, but I did a really good job and. When people, when a director or producer knows you and they say to you, listen, that was really good. Like that was really good, good choices. That was very good. And you know they mean it. You know you're not going to get the job because they want to tell you that because they know they're not going to have a chance to tell you because you're not going to be on the set in two weeks. You know what I mean? So when, when they do that and they're sincere about it, you know you didn't get it. So I'm sulking out of the room. And the casting director says to me, her exact words were, are you interested in doing a TV show? And I think to myself, like, nah, I want to, like, make pizzas, right? So so, so I turn around, and I said, well, yeah. And she goes, okay. She goes, I'm casting this show, and we're having trouble casting this role, meaning Mikey Palmichi. She said, we're looking for somebody that's not a real goomba, that's cleaned up a little bit. So I was like, okay. I didn't know what she was talking about. The Sopranos, I thought it was like a musical thing. So she goes, okay, she goes, I want you to go to my office, here's the address, pick up a script, sides, and a a tape of the pilot. So I walk, it was a couple of blocks, and the casting director is Christopher Walken's wife, Georgian Walken. So I go pick up the stuff from the assistant, and I go up to see my parents in Rockland County that night, and my mother, my father, and my oldest sister, Joanne, watch the pilot of The Sopranos that was filmed in 1997. This is now May of 98. I I thought it was a work of art. I thought it was brilliant. Because that year, you know, all the camera work was NYPD Blue with the camera jerking around and the longest longest scene, the cut, the longest cut is seven seconds. You know, it's this, cut, cut, movie. This thing, the the TV show opens up on a statue, and it's one shot for like a minute and a half. It goes from the statue to a painting on the wall and then to this guy, Tony Soprano's face. It was a work of art. I was like, this is like a Scorsese movie. And then I got a little nervous because I wanted the job really badly because I thought the pilot was magnificent. So if I recall, that was a Tuesday. I went down to Silver Cup. Everybody was there. I read for David and everybody on Wednesday. They made me read again on Friday. They made me read again on Monday. On Monday, they told me on the spot that I was hired, sent me to wardrobe, and then on Tuesday, it was the first day of principal photography for the whole series in Kearney, New Jersey, and that's where I did the fuck face scene scenes with with um, Jimmy in the car, and that's when we first met. I was in LA for 14 years. I studied with Milton, as I told you, from '84 to '98. This job was in May and June, early June now. Uh, you know, it was I think it was June 2nd or whatever it was, um, and of of uh, of '98. And I didn't know any of these guys. All the New York Italians knew each other, but I was in LA from from really you know from '82. 80, so, um, from '81 actually. So it was just magical it was magical and working with jimmy we improved a lot of that scene and then and, and it's in the it's in the show and then the next day a memo came out and they were like no one improvs. no one changes the script without going through the writers first robin green mitch burgess you know david chase so working on that show i was so lucky to be on that show i was so lucky but when Which did you so good?
0: When did you know that you were only gonna be in for ten episodes?
1: <laughs> so I'm living in LA, right? And I they keep writing for me. You know, and in in episode two, three, four, like they're writing great roles for me and junior. I shoot Mendon Falone in the eyeball. So it's like episode four, and I throw Rusty I, Irish off the waterfall, and they're writing for me. So I am um, David Chase, who's an introvert. You know, he's an intellectual. I'm the exact opposite. I love to talk. Actors, a lot of actors love to talk. You know, he's, he's a guy he doesn't talk a lot. So he puts his arm around me at Patterson Falls. He goes, you know what? He goes, I really love what you're doing with this character. He said, I didn't write him that way, but I love what you're doing with him. And what I did with Mikey was, all because of my studying with Milton Kinsella's, like, if I'm going to shoot someone in the eyeball on page 40, I don't have to be a tough guy. As a matter of fact, I shouldn't be a tough guy. If I'm going to shoot someone dead in the eyeball, I should play the opposite. So I decided to make him a little bit goofy and funny like a Joe Pesci guy and a little bit like James Caan in The Godfather. That's how I, want, I wanted to model Mikey. A little bit of James Caan, a little bit of Joe Pesci who was playing a, a little bit, bit of a dumb guy. So he, so I tried to make him funny. I tried to make Mikey funny. And then when I kill somebody, I kill him. I, I don't have to be tough. I am tough, right? I'm a killer. So I, I move out of L.A. I sublet my apartment. I move here. And I, don't, I never said this to them to guilt them. So now I'm like, oh, my God, this show. I love these scripts. This is going to be great. I got it made. I got it made. And then episode seven, he calls me into his office in Silver Cup. And he goes, Al, you know you're going to die at the end of this, right? And I was like, oh, God. I almost started to cry. I was like, like Woody Allen in one of those movies. Please, David, don't kill me. And uh, I said, l- l- let me get a sidekick, you know, for the last five episodes and we'll kill him. And David's like, no, no, it's, this is not that kind of show, you know. And, uh, and then, I mean, I was really, really upset. And I didn't say, "Hey, man, I moved." I moved. I just wasn't that kind of guy. I was like, "I moved." I, yeah. You, you told me, oh, and the, oh, before that, my manager, uh, at the time, Stephen Fisher, called Elaine Landress, and she was like, "We love Al. We love Al." So I'm like, "Oh, they, uh, this is great. If this show gets picked up for another season, I'm in." Like, this is so, so, so. I didn't do that. I didn't go, David. I moved. I moved here because of this. I, I, I didn't try to guilt anybody. So. I um he goes to me, he goes, why are you so upset? Those were his exact words. And I said, because I think the show's going to be a big hit. I said, the, the words just roll off my tongue. I said, the writing's great, the characters are great. And this is fascinating what David Chase said. You know, because he's a bit of a genius too. He really is a bit of a creative genius. And he just, you know, again, he's not a talker like me. There was a silence, and he goes, I don't know if America's going to get this humor. And then there was another silence for a long time. And he said, and if we get picked up for another season, I have nothing to say on this matter. He was done with his Sopranos story in season one. He was done. Like that season had a beginning, middle, and end. And they were, Tony Soprano was supposed to kill his mother with that pillow, but they changed their mind a few days before that episode. He was going to kill his mother. Wow. You know, for for plotting with Uncle Junior to kill him. And he never liked, his mother was a nasty woman. And Livia is modeled after David Chase's mother. David's real name is Cesario. He's from Newark. He had an Italian mother and he said to everyone she was really nasty and and are not a nice person so season one is different if you look at it it's different than any other season it was about him and his mother that's what it was really about he happened to be in the mafia but that show was about him his mother and his uncle and of course his wife and kids it was more of a family thing a family dynamic and how his job affected his family right how his family affected the other family and then once, lit, once she died of cancer for real, you know, it became much more of a mafia show. But again, you know, I did my work and I could have done this work and never gotten in The Sopranos. And if I didn't get in The Sopranos, my life wouldn't be the same. I was lucky. And you can be the greatest actor in the world. And if you're on 11 shitty shows, nothing's going to happen. You could have, you, if, you, if you're ready, you could have two lines in The Godfather and then parlay a career for yourself for the rest of your life. So, you know, a lot of it is luck. you got to be ready. you got to do the work. The work is essential. It's essential. Like, there's no conversation if you don't hone your craft, whether you're playing guitar, drums, knitting, flying an airplane, or acting. It's a craft. And if you don't put in thousands of hours, you're just wasting your life and kidding yourself.
0: Now you know, I
1: tell oh, right, Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was
0: gonna say I was gonna say for you, you know, looking at your body of work, you are, you know, after the Sopranos, you know, you have gotten some really quality gigs. I mean, you look at it. House of Cards, Suits now is like the hottest show around. You were in Brotherhood, you know, all these shows that were good shows, do you attribute Did The Sopranos help you get in the door? Because the first season of The Sopranos, it wasn't really huge. But then, I mean, down the road, did people say...
1: The Sopranos helped me get in every door. It helped me in every single aspect of my life, made it for the better. And The Sopranos was critically acclaimed. The critics loved it. So when I went to an audition, people expected me to be good. Like, they expected me to be good, and if I wasn't, I disappointed them. So, yes, The Sopranos did everything for me. Like, House of Cards, oh, Julie, oh, my God, I love her. I can't remember, believe I don't remember her last name. The casting director worked on The Sopranos. That put me in um, House of Cards, and she pushed for me. You know, and it's a funny story. I got off a plane from L.A. at, like, 2 in the morning, and my audition was a giant monologue with my CNN debate with Tevin with, uh, Spacey. And I was like, I said to my wife, I can't go, I'm not ready, I just can't go. I was like panicking because I couldn't memorize it. I like to memorize everything. I, I'm not one of those guys, I can't act and read. I, I can't be as creative if I'm trying to remember a word instead of trying to remember, you know, how someone's voice affects my emotions. So I, I almost didn't go. My wife was like, Al, you go. What the hell's wrong with you? And I went. And I did remember the lines and I got that role and Julie oh my god, I can't believe it. I'm getting old, man. Um the casting director was fabulous. And you know, she remembered me from The Soprano. She worked in the casting department with, with um you know, uh Georgian Walken and uh Meredith and everybody. Julie Julie I can't remember her for name. Julie So terrible. You had said but anyway.
0: You had said because it was critically acclaimed People expect you, you're going to deliver at an audition. They expect yeah, the work. But now, does that put pressure on you as an actor? Does that put in a little added pressure? Even though you're a professional, when you sit there and go, you know, you're going in there, they're expecting Derek Jeter. They're not expecting, you know, some utility player. Did that make it harder for you when you'd audition? Does that put pressure on you?
1: Maybe. You know, it's very possible some people have made it harder. It's exactly what I wanted in my life i i want i wanna i wanna i want be expected I want people to expect me to do the best I can be and be really good and I want that for myself I'll take that pressure anytime and and my whole goal for the week before is to live up to that and be that good and be prepared and do what I can do and that's why I was freaking out because it was a last minute audition i I was on a plane and in those days they didn't have all the internet and crap on the planes where you can do everything you know what I mean like I couldn't really study it till I got home. So yes, I, it, it, it puts a good pressure on me. You know, I want to be good. I want to be thought of as good. And I want to live up to that standard as, as often as possible. Now, but, I, I, no, I, it, it doesn't depress me. It makes me happy. <laughs> I, I want to
0: hear, I want to talk about Reacher because as I said, I just had Malcolm
1: Godwin on who is a, uh,
0: Goodwin on who was in the first season, and he said, "You know, the guy who plays Reacher is such a big, gentle giant." But he said, when he poked him in this chest in the one scene, he's like, "Holy crap, that hurt!" But how did Reacher come about? Because your characters were, as I said, the scene with you and Dominic when you're when you're. I'm not going to give a spoiler, but. If you haven't seen it, people, he has a great the scene second. where Dominic con- confronts him about something that's happened. And it's a very intense scene. How many takes did the guy take that? Because you, you guys are doing some heavy hitting on that. I mean, you're, you're really doing some heavy hitting.
1: Thank you. Not many. Not many. I think it, it was like two tops. Dominic is a consummate actor. He's a great guy. He, you know, he shows up, he knows all his lines, he's prepared, and he's one of those guys, in my opinion, like Jim Gandolfini. He's got this rough exterior, but he's got the soul of a poet, and it comes through in his work. Like, Dominic's the kind of guy that stabs someone in the eyeball on a TV show, and you still like him, just like Jimmy Gandolfini had that quality. So Dominic, it was like playing tennis with Augustine, you know, we both we both were having so much fun. We were just in the moment. We were doing it. We both, we all knew our lines. So we just, we didn't do many takes at all. I, 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 I think in a couple of the close-ups, they did one take. And we were like, we want more, if I recall. And they were like, no, no, we got it. We got it. You don't have to do it more. So it was, uh, Dominic was just great. And when you're acting with someone who's great, it makes it easier for you to be good. You know, you're just, it, 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 it's just, it's like playing tennis with Odyssey. You know, it's just a better game. It's an easier game for you. So um, we had a great time. And, and Alan Richmond, he, first of all, he's fantastic in that role. And the best thing about him is he's a great guy. He's grateful, he's humble, he's generous. It's not going to his head, and he's a terrific guy. His father was an Air Force, a a high-level Air Force officer. He grew up on on Air Force bases. You know, he's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a gentleman. He's old school, and he's a terrific guy. I loved working on that show. Loved it.
0: What was... uh?
1: come about. This is how it came about. One of the episodes of The Sopranos was written by Nick Santora. Then Nick Santora puts me on prison break. Nick Santora from The Sopranos. He puts me on prison break. I'm on the whole first season. I play Philly Falzone. Then he puts me on another show in Toronto, called A Most Dangerous Game with Liam Hemsworth. And then the, the casting director, Stephanie Gorin, who cast that, calls me up and goes, "Nick Santora loves you," and he said, and, "and he said he wants you to be in this show. You know, will you, you, but he wants you to audition." So I was like, no problem. So I auditioned. So Nick Santoro calls me up, Santora, and he said, when I was writing this scene, I was imagining Dominic Lamborghese, Lamborghese talking to you. He said, I was imagining you two actors doing this scene when I was writing it. And he said, and when I got both of you, he said, I, I couldn't believe it. He goes, this is going to be one of the best scenes in the, in the series. That's what he said, the creator of the show. And I was like, dude, thank you so, so much. Like, And it it was just, I love acting. I love showbiz.
0: I got to ask acting. you this about real quick. Yeah. The desk. When he pushes the desk against <laughs> you, does that hurt? I mean, is he really doing that? Because I was sitting there going, because it's, not like, it's that, not like you're just touching it. He's like, you know, how did you shoot that scene?
1: He would have broken my bones. Is, <laughs> they put a a plastic buffer behind the desk so it looks like he slammed it up against me but it's but he put they put a buffer on both sides of my hips against the wall so the desk hit that and I was like you know and I flew back and and with my hand that was planned that I break the glass on the mirror that was breakaway glass so it's all smoke and mirrors you know it's all but you know you act it you have to you have to sell it like it was real you know, like you have to look like you're in excruciating pain, but um, if that guy kicked that desk like that, he would have broken my hip.
0: <laughs> now, what is it like for you now? Because during the pandemic, people started watching The Sopranos again. I just rewatched the fr- I just rewatched the series um, a few months ago. I was like, you know, what, I need something to watch. What is it? Because now you're getting new fans who they didn't see it when it came out. You're getting younger fans. Um, what is that like for you? Cause are you getting noticed because of that role? Because all of a sudden there's a whole new generation of people seeing it.
1: Lately, the last like year, when I'm out in public, it, 20 minutes doesn't go by that someone doesn't come up to me. And especially when I'm traveling in airports and on airplanes. And it was so funny. I I just I had to go to New Orleans and work a couple of days ago. And coming from the Philippines, you know... The, Two captains came out of the cockpit on two different legs of that flight. The first captain going to Manila invited me and Deb to Alaska to go to his house and go salmon fishing and look at the glaciers. You know, because of the Sopranos. And then the, the next pilot took pictures with us. He came out, and it was about Reacher. So the trip to New Orleans... Everyone was commenting about Reacher and only one guy was The Sopranos. But yes, The Sopranos, like, it's a whole new generation. Again, it changed it changed my life in every way. I can't go anywhere. And somebody goes, I like your work. I love The Sopranos. I like Mikey. And then they say the lines, like, how's the boy, Mikey? <laughs> you know, it's, it's really fun. It's really funny. It cracks me up. But yes, it's more now than when the show first came out by a long shot. Like, for the first every two days, someone would come up to me when it was when it was you know, on HBO. Now, honestly, it's every twenty minutes. It's every twenty minutes. I in the grocery store and the drugstore, wherever I am, you know, people are like they all watch The Sopranos. So
0: before we go, I gotta I always ask my question. This question: What when you look back because you've had a working career, you you busted you busted your ass. It's not like things were given to you. You worked hard. What are just like one or two of the ones that you look back and are just the the highlight? Like, was it someone you worked with? And there's got to be something they're just like sometimes someone goes, oh, well, I got to work with Burt Reynolds or something like that. What is something when you look back on your career, you can be makes you very, very proud and
1: happy. I know exactly what it is. I know exactly what it is. It was Beatlemania. It was The Sopranos. It was House of Cards changed my life. It, House of Cards changed my life. And dirty dancing i was in the musical the 15 million dollar musical the north american premiere of the movie dirty dancing i played the jerry Arbuck role we broke every box office record in toronto on, on on record we broke every record and i was supposed to do it for a little while i stayed in it for 18 months a year and a half it was a delight Everyone in that show was, were, it was the best of the best dancers in North America. The actors, the, the girl who played Baby was fabulous. The girl who played Lisa, that it was just terrific. Those are the highlights. Also, Person of Interest, I enjoyed a lot, too, with Jim Cavie. I was on that for five years. And um, that was, but those, those are the, you know, The Sopranos, Beatlemania, Dirty Dancing, and House of Cards. Those were the thing and... And acting class at Milton's. That was probably the best part of my life. And also, when you're in an acting class like that and you're young and single, you don't have to go to bars or restaurants to meet girls. <laughs> the most beautiful women in the world come to L.A. to study with Milton's class in those 99 seats. and So your social life is there. You don't have to spend money. You can just do a good scene, and that's, that's your status. You don't have to drive a BMW and have a beautiful apartment you know to to you know date people you can just date your peers in class and everything was contained and everything was about being trying to improve your life and your craft and your career and the that acting class was one of the best times of my life I got to tell you like absolutely hands down Ooh. but I love it all I just I, I I think that I'm so I was so lucky I was so lucky to a know what i wanted to do when i was 12 and b you know find the people that that taught me how to work hard and you know not give up and work hard and when things got rough just work harder and when things seemed impossible just work harder and if it's the last man standing with acting you know the last guy there is going to get the job eventually you know it's it's like And the the community feels sorry for you. If you're hanging around for 10, 12 years, you know, and I don't mean hanging around like going to bars, getting drunk or, you know, selling real estate on the side. I mean, full time acting, auditioning for everything. After 10, 12 years, the casting people like actually really feel bad for you. They're like, you know what? Give this guy a shot. You know, you have to prove yourself, you know, because everyone wants to be an actor. So you know you got you got 17 million people that would love to be on on a hit show, and then you got to whittle it down to the people that really a can do it and b hung around long enough to where the, the casting people like they deserve it. You know, like Lorraine Bracco, like Jimmy. Jimmy was on Crimson Tide and and Get Shorty. Nobody knew who he was. When we did the Sopranos, no one knew who anyone was. We were all unknown except Lorraine. Lorraine did good Goodfellas, but she hadn't worked for four years. Edie had a recurring on Oz. Jimmy did Get Shorty. He was great. And, and Crimson Tide, but nobody knew who he was, he, you know, from those movies. The industry might have, but none of the public. So we were all unknowns, like thrilled to be on this show and thrilled to have a job. Especially in New York. There were no jobs in those days. Dick Wolf had one show. You know, New York was like pretty slim pickings. So anyway, those are the gigs that meant the most to me.
0: Well, this has been awesome, Al. Now, I know your show, you have the show at the Cutting Room, uh, February 10th.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm really proud of that show. And a lot, like when people ask you to come see them sing, I understand most of the time it sucks. This is like, it's like an off-Broadway show. It has a story. It has a book. The songs are the number one hits of the 60s and 70s. Like, they're number one for a reason because everybody loves them. And like I said, we got Barry Manilow's, you know, musical director. The band is world-class. Deborah is fabulous. And if you're in New York, and you better do it soon, because we only do it once a year. It sells out every time, and it's close now. Like, between me and Deborah, we've got like 130 people that we've already have. So um, if you're going to do it, do it fast. And we'd love to have you. And uh, we come out after the show. We talk to everybody. We sign pictures if you want. And... um, and that's it. And what else? I have NCIS. Watch NCS on CBS for the next three weeks. Right. I'm on that. Uh, I'm on the season premiere of NCIS, the original one. And uh, and Reacher and Suits are out, and that's it. Well, people,
0: go check Al out. Just go to IMDb. Look at all the stuff he's been in. And you go and you watch it. Now, you're on social media, right? Instagram?
1: Yeah, I'm on Al Sapienza is um Facebook. Al Sapienza is... Instagram, Twitter. I think I'm all else Sapienza. Okay.
0: So, people, go check them out. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 990 episodes there. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. And if you're in the South Jersey area, I don't perform a lot, but I will be doing a stand-up, about a 30-minute set at Pizzeria Uno on 73 of Maple Shade, Dave's Comedy Room on... February 24th, it's a Saturday. So once again, check out Al's work. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.